10 trips, the new reality of psychedelics. Reality, psychedelics, it's an interesting phrase. What's real, what's surreal, and when do we actually know that we're in fact hallucinating? I can speak about the title a little bit. Uh, as far as that kind of invitation to ontology and psychiatry and uh, and quantum physics goes, I'm just going to hold off on that for the moment. It's a bit early in the morning. But I think that psychedelics is a term that has, is a constructed term that's got a particular date of usage in the 1950s between two particular people, Humphrey Osmond and Aldous Huxley. And it coined a kind of, white, educated, middle-class experience of an altered state of consciousness that came from taking particular types of drug. And it's been projected both forwards and backwards and upwards and downwards from that, as though it's got an inherent, stable, conceptual reality, when in fact it's kind of been constructed and deconstructed and now reconstructed again and again and again. And this particular incarnation that comes, you know, largely from... First of all, Roland Griffiths and the movement in John Hopkins in the early 2000s, and then was given this turbocharge by Michael Pollan's book in 2018. The new reality of psychedelics is really the hype around this current incarnation of psychedelics as the antidote for mental health. That's what I had in mind. The clinical narrative of here at last, after 50 years of Bidity in psychiatry, we've got something that's going to save our bacons from suffering on all fronts. And with that, the huge corporate innovation of the clinical movement and how it's rippled out. It's not just going to have clinical ramifications, it's going to make life bearable for everyone, not just bearable, it's going to enhance life for everyone. So that was the kind of reality that I was toying with. And as you kind of allude to now, you're deeply skeptical about big parts of this but I, I wonder i think i mean let's be let's be honest i was skeptical before i started i mean just because working you're, you're a late convert you're a late convert to, to well, the right but the, the okay but i'm a late convert to psych i'm a late convert to psychedelics but i've been working clinically in psychiatry and neurology and neurosurgery for a long time and i know something about the kind of things that determine people's mental health, particularly in severe and enduring long-term illnesses. And that these are social and contextual factors to do with the way that we live per se, to do with genes that are disposable to particular types of thinking styles, to do with poverty, to do with broken families and traumas of all sorts. And the idea that passively receiving a pill even if it's guided by some notional expert therapist, that the idea that that could somehow radically alter the course of someone's life when those lives were in mind in the context and conditions I just described, it just didn't ring true to me. I was open to it as a possibility, but there was something about my clinical experience, obviously, that mitigated against that. Yeah, even, even with Ibogaine that can, yeah, sort of wipe, wipe away drug withdrawal symptoms... I've heard stories of folks just going back to the same home, the same situation, because whichever clinic they've gone to and have paid $10,000 to haven't ensured that they've got somewhere different to go back to. And they just immediately relapsed, even even though they actually had well, no 
physical, I think, yeah, I think physical withdrawal symptoms because it's it's an environmental thing. And I know you had an interesting experience in in the run up to one of well the planned Ibogaine trip you had. Presumably that I mean, was one it, of the most mind manifesting of your ten trips in the book. But it it a good a good example because. Um, Ibogaine's association with addiction is socially constructed. When it when Ibogaine was first discovered in inverted commas by French colonialists in Gabon, it was marketed in France in the 30s and 40s as a generalized tonic, as something that could treat all manner of different ailments like snake oil. And then by accident, Howard Lotsoff came across the properties that that you just described about how it can seem it seems to um, soften the withdrawal from opiates. And so it became, the two things became coupled. But as you, as you say, I, before I worked clinically, I ran an NGO for three years that dealt with heroin and crack addicts in a Northern town. And I just built up a variety of services uh, that were giving provision to them because none such existed. And we dealt with hundreds of young heroin addicts and I could count on one hand the number of those that were able to get clean using the te technologies that were available at the time and stay clean because they because as you suggest they were just returning to the same material conditions to the same head to the same history of experiences that they'd always had and whatever even though they might have got clean for a month those conditions weren't changing and th there would be relapse sooner or later my experience with trying to i mean just just briefly the book is the book was predicated on um how i might test out some of the skepticism and i decided cuz i myself had problems with addiction in my early, in my late teens and early 20s and stayed sort of drug and drink free for 25 years and then had this sort of rather serendipitous experience with 5meo out of the blue really um i just let it happen against my all my fears and it was truly uh, astonishing both intellectually and emotionally and i went to the pub to my publisher and said i'd like to try and revamp michael pollan's book and make experience at the heart of it so i'm going to go and curate 10 different trips with 10 different molecules in 10 different settings beginning with a imperial fmri trial uh, on a drip feed of um of uh, ketamine and, and then, then they didn't let you on it because they found out that you weren't psychologically na naive enough. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and working through all of the medical and religious and shamanic models, as well as the different compounds. And the experience with Ibogaine was to take place. In, well, I, I toyed with the idea of a boga, but it, uh, in the end, Ibogaine suited where I was at in the world. And it was to take place in the Bahamas with a, a seven star, uh, a seven star retreat center there and i was interested in the whole the, the way that re the retreat industry had sprung up around psychedelics that is particularly the contrast between what was going on in mexico where there were these crash drive-through ibogaine um uh um experiences for people to white knuckle their addictions usually americans and uh and then and then further down south in costa rica and now in the bahamas these sort of seven star retreat centers which are charging like at least $25,000 for um for a week's um ibogaine treatment and i just 
I was signed up for it. I was due to write a big feature for Esquire magazine to help promote the organization that had um, had launched this thing. And I just systematically became profoundly distrustful of the safety and the motives behind the people um, running that particular organization. And so it fell apart right at the moment that I was supposed to, to go. So my experience with Ibogaine was uh, non-experiential. It was just... Uh, it, 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 um, it was a non-existent trip. I ended up, in fact, rather uh, than going one, to... One of those non-hallucinogenic psychedelics. Right, exactly. I ended <laughs> up, instead of doing that, I ended up going to, you know, you know, the dream machine, that technology. Um, it's been reprised recently by um, the neuroscientist Anil Seth and the musician John Hopkins. And you go into this black box. You don't take anything. You go into a large black dome and there's about 50 of you on the wall. And they each person has... Um, light of a particular frequency strobed onto their uh, closed eyelids. And John Hopkins has produced uh, a drum and bass track at the same frequency as the light. And it actually generates these uh, visual hallucinations that are different for each person. And because Anil Seth's got a lot of data from fMRI scanning, he can play with the frequencies and get different predictable results from the visual cortex and the auditory cortex. So I, I did that instead. So that was my, uh, you know, like not non-drug uh, hallucination experience. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. I think with the rise of psychedelics, it is coming a whole interest in all sorts of holotropic states that don't require any substance and are perhaps easier to integrate and may have more long-lasting effects compared to maybe like one trip, depending on the, the setting. I know you're big into meditation and you, you were previously a monk, or perhaps you perhaps you still are in a, in a way. In a way. Um, well, for, first of all, I, th I agree with you. I think there's something about, if you, if you can master a skill rather than just take a drug to generate certain types of experience, then you feel like things are more under control and more repeatable. Interestingly, there's been quite a lot of recent development in the in the sort of corporate world of um drugs that have the same molecular structure as psychedelics without giving you the experience of psychedelics and so there's this like and the argument for that is that it's somehow safer but i having worked in psychiatry for a number of years and seen everyone there popping pills that don't do anything other than kind of shut them down what what difference is a new drug that a so a so-called triple psychedelic you know it's just more of the same but yeah i i think i mean just a long story short my my battle with addiction um le led me to um seeking other ways of um treating my mind and i think uh, i found meditation so powerful when i first experienced it in my early 20s and uh, I was in India at the time, and then, and then I ended up, uh, I ended up joining a monastery, a contemplative monastery um, in uh, California, and living there for three years. And it was incredibly useful to me to sort of uh, immerse myself in different meditation practices and studying studying the mind from from those different traditions, from different spiritual traditions. Later worked in psychiatry and neurology, and I became very um, interested in how meditation, yoga, and different kind of body technologies might be used 
with neurological populations in particular as as the only things that were available to them were kind of um drug regimens and a bit of talking therapy and it seemed to me this was a population that was just criminally neglected in the nhs uh, so that was something that i was trying to i tried to get involved with and yeah thanks so much for sharing what was what do you make of it now then the the nhs released or nice the the watchdog who set some guidelines last year i believe said okay you can't just prescribe antidepressants now without having recommended lifestyle changes beforehand and then some practices including meditation and yoga i believe why has that only come now you know after 30 30 years of these these pills being dished out and we've got a quarter of people in Scotland, for example, in a slightly lower proportion, but still a massive one in England, long-term on, on, on these antidepressant drugs? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I'm not really naturally inclined to think conspiratorially about the world, but I think that psych psychiatry is so intellectually and therapeutically bereft. It's had, you know, it's just like its framework for understanding the mind is really broken and it, it kind of always has been and that and and the drugs that it prescribes are the only thing it's got to kind of maintain its identity and it's propped up by huge contracts with drug manufacturers and big pharma it's hard not to think a little conspiratorially that the that the standard framework for understanding our mental illness and even that is a kind of concept and an overlay is is maintained by a synergy between institutional psychiatry and um, corporate big pharma. It's hard not to think like that around uh, this whole field. So the idea of trying things that don't cost money, I mean, it does not cost money, or it costs very little money by contrast to uh, try and teach someone to a different relationship with their body through meditation or yoga. Um it's hard not to think that they would want to have barriers to those kinds of practices in some way. I think it's a huge threat as well. I mean, it's interesting. This this overlaps a little bit with psychedelic-assisted therapy. If you've trained for 10 years in psychotherapy and you're treating someone within a psychiatry department and you're making tiny gains perhaps, but the gains themselves might not be different from placebo, then to have a technology like, say, the, the depressed person that you've been treating goes for the first time in their life. Perhaps they're like a, an old lady on a housing estate, goes to a, mass, a Thai massage therapist for the first time in her life and suddenly has comes out of an hour session with a completely different relationship with her body for the first time in her life. It's quite threatening to the therapist. And I think this interesting thing about psychedelic, you know, we read a lot about the clinical efficacy of say magic mushrooms for um uh, uh intractable depression now where does the therapist themselves the person that's trained in this stand in relationship to the efficacy are they are they somehow in charge of the experience or is it the pill and if it's the pill have the has the therapist ever experienced such enormous changes in their in their history of therapy elsewhere no. And if that's the case, do they have this sort of secret, I don't know, secret threat to their identity that suddenly all of their power is contained within a mushroom? All, all their power to change is bound up with the thing that they're giving to the patient. And in that sense, are they any different from the psychiatrists 
who've been prescribing pills for years, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Obviously, one has to obtain certain qualifications and do your apprenticeship and everything to become a, a practicing doctor or something, but there's probably no barometer, but at least in psychiatry or elsewhere, on like how happy <laughs> the per the person is and, and whether they're just projecting or whether their their shadow ego is is in the driving seat but but to cut the nhs a bit of slack i know that for example in like post um cancer care and radiology that there's a set of social prescribing with with reiki and massage and, and i know people that have had their first reiki, reiki session through that and have had yeah amazing amazing experiences sure. but a lot of, a lot of the skepticism that's coming from from the more radical folks in the psychedelic movement, decriminalized nature and and everyone. And I think some of their concerns are valid that if we are if we are funneling psychedelics through this medicalized route, then the ratchet the ratch ratchet system of capitalism will only force it in one direction where the pills will get ever more diluted and will end up serving a system that seeks to dole out as many pills as possible just just through just the intrinsic nature of the system rather than any kind of overt bad intentions yeah i mean i just think in terms of like the health economics of how these psychedelics might fit with the nhs i think it's interesting that you know a lot of the research in the 50s was uh using lsd but lsd is expensive because it requires 10 man hours to supervise this time round, John Hopkins began with psilocybin, which is kind of four to five hours, perhaps. So it halves the length. But increasingly, a lot of the corporate investment has been into DMT and 5-MeO-DMT in particular, which is 15 minutes. So I could yeah, I could see, I, I worked in a big Victorian hospital in London for years, and we had an ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, in the basement where no one out, there was no light, there were no windows, no one went there apart from the very sick to have their ECT. It was kind of out of the way, in between laundry and the morgue. You know, it was like the dark, the the dark corridor. So I could see, I could, I can't see like a new suite of mush, psilocybin-assisted therapy in the in the brand new neuroscience building, but I could see them shoehorning DMT, five meo DMT sessions into a. A dark room on the on the on the basement floor. You know, fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes is exactly the length of a neurology or a psychiatry consultation. And now we can just bop you with this uh, toad venom through a crack pipe. Make sure the walls are insulated for your screaming, and then you know, on to the next patient. I can see that that might fit in with the the breaking the broken NHS that I know. Although, in my experience, toad venom and and synthetic five meo probably deliver the most sensorially incredible experience I mean, almost like agreed. a cosmic orgasm agreed. so i mean the more of those available in the nhs the better frankly yeah i mean perhaps perhaps so although i don't know about the risk management with 5meo i mean there's given that there's some very fragile people anyway you know in in acute psychiatry i don't know how you can manage the risk with something like 5-MeO. Well, how are they managing the risk with EC ECT? I mean, 
No, it's true. I'm just saying it's, but it's hard to create an inform. You know, the NHS requires some kind of informed consent. Uh, it's hard to sort of write up an informed consent for a transformative experience like five meo because you don't really know what you're going to be like after. You but, don't know really what you're allowing yourself into, and the doctors certainly don't. But it's it's the same with anything, is it? Is it not? People people don't know what they're getting with antidepressants, especially at high doses, and there's certainly. A lack I, of I mean, long, I do think it is. I think it, there was no long term data. The you know the people who are criticizing quite rightly the the very small, relatively speaking, studies on MDMA that that are going to underpin its likely medical legalization what what sort of studies are there long term for antidepressants or indeed no there are I mean, okay look, look i think from a distance you're right that is the same with anything but first of all there is much more data for antidepressants than there are for psychedelics just there's just much more clinical no, data no, i'm not i'm not suggesting there isn't but but for, for in terms of long term well, long term data. I mean, there's at least yeah, the data is factored, factored in that people will be on them for 15, 15, 20 years. Look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you're not going to position me in, in such a way that I'm defending um, antidepressant medication. Yeah, I would I am just slightly say that, devil's advocate, forgive me. No, but me. I would just say that there, I think there's just something very, um, the very significant difference experientially, obviously, between taking. Um, 5-MeO and then and an SSRI in that there is a there is a you know there's just as you said this just cosmic collapse of your sensorium uh and that in Michael Pollan's experience as we got it that's one of the most significant moments in his life and that's something you've got to live alongside and it may change you and it's very it's therefore very hard and there's been some philosophical thinking about this. It's very hard to give in a clinical setting and form consent about something that's going to change you dramatically, because how do you know if the future you would have wanted it or would have allowed it? You know, it's that it's kind of it's on that Occam's razor of um, different selves. I guess it's all about education then. But as you suggest, for that sort of earth shattering experience especially for the psychedelically naive maybe it is better to just start them off with some non-hallucinogenic <laughs> mushroom microdoses yeah 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 i think so i've forgotten her name. is it la paul has written quite a lot about transformative experiences i think that's her name and she compare the, the example she uses is i'm a vampire you are going to love being a vampire. You just have to let me bite you on the neck. Now, what position are you in other than all of the sort of films you've watched about vampires to make a decision about what it's like to be me? Well, I can tell you, but I'm really biased. So if you're if you're speaking to a psychedelic therapist about psychedelic, the benefits of psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, we, there's lots of problems with biasing in psychedelics as well. So how reliable is the information that you're giving me? So what do you make of these retreat centers that put out posts on Instagram and elsewhere? Kind of promoting their facilities or promoting the experience in, in quite a measured way in some cases. And then in other cases, totally selling it as a panacea. In a one minute, I, I mean, totally selling it as a panacea is just, I think, just irresponsible, and it's become, it's become just acceptable universal, universally to do that. 
it's it's it, it, that's just become part of the rhetoric around psychedelics i mean i can see that a, an organized thoughtful safe retreat for some people may be very effective just as it would be to in yoga or in meditation just the idea of retreat itself is extremely effective um personally i i i i found that i quite like not having psychedelics guided by another person i like being on my own with the risks that that entails i like communing with nature and being able to walk relatively safely in whatever direction i choose and not listen to music that's been pre-programmed by um some wise evidence-based researchers in their in their mocked up living rooms i have done some ayahuasca tourism in the past but i've also done some uh, ayahuasca ceremonies and other medicine ceremonies with indigenous groups where they're not interested in serving tourists at all i was just been invited into ceremonies of, of the and frankly they're so strange and otherworldly the way that they go about and understand their medicinal ceremonies and they're so lacking what we might think of as risk or retreat or self-restoration that in some cases that i can think of they're just very punkish and decadent and wild and risky but in in all of that the ones that i've been to in all of that there's a really closely um observed history to these practices that come out of a very complex interaction with colonialism and such like for example in colombia uh and 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 means a great deal to those people that are doing it and at least in britain we lack that framework right in terms of our indigenous spirituality is very much centered around the church which itself must have displaced certain nature-based practices druidry so trying to reclaim that now is, is a very tricky thing and, it, and it's partly why indigenous people from south america and elsewhere get invited to the uk although there are a few mushroom medicine men who are seeking to bring back bring to life continue these British folkloric medicine traditions and in some cases not even including medicine more more just being about the drum as in Siberia right yeah I think the one of the most powerful experiences I had in writing the book was going to visit the Kogi tribe in northern Colombia who don't use I mean they don't have any understanding of what psychedelic would mean or or could mean they certainly use a lot of plants some of them are psychoactive no psychedelics that we know about and yet what we call psychedelic this invention from the mid-1950s you might usefully use to describe their entire sense of their relationship with themselves their bodies the world around them nature the earth the cosmos and a lot of their practices therefore might be thought of rather than ingesting a drug that makes them psychedelic a lot of their understanding of their communal interactions the way that they treat themselves are a kind of psychedelic in the sense that they are folding in and manifesting in deeply symbolic animist ways, the past and the present with the future uh, and how um, their relationship with the world is always trading off between um, an order that's external versus an order that's internal and mapping these two things 
just in the same way that if you've taken a lot of acid, you might start seeing patterns in your own internal states that map onto the shape of clouds or the way that the ants are moving across your hand. This is happening in an ongoing way for this culture, irrespective of what they've just ingested. I, I was reading about them earlier this year, but I did a five-day darkness retreat, and uh. I learned that their future shamans, if you like, identified as children in the Buddhist tradition, and they go into caves, total darkness for seven years in, in order to truly connect with their cosmovision and, I guess, not get corrupted by the outside world while their brain is developing. Yeah, I think it's 18 years, actually. The the For the full training for a, a Kogi Mama, it's 18 years. It's divided into two nine-year periods with a very short gap in between. But having... You know, as a neuroscientist, I know that we just get taught that if the child, if the infant is not exposed to light in the first, um, uh, in the first months and months of existence, then the visual cortex doesn't develop properly. And they've done lots of experiments with cats, to show you know, sewing their eyes up and such like. Sadly, having spoken to anthropologists who have lived with the kogi in different ways, there is some exposure to light usually in the form of moonlight, which is not a great deal, but up in the high Sierra, above 5,000 metres in a clear night, they're getting quite a lot of light that way. But yeah, I think it leads to this tremendous interoceptive sensitivity to the internal states that the darkness promotes. And I don't know if you experience this, but I think they also do, in a sort of conceptual way, hallucinate things that aren't there in the darkness. I think they, and that's part of their visual uh, narrative for the unfolding of things. And then the mamas, the the priests that you described, the priest class, are responsible for making divinations for the rest of the tribe. And these divinations use their interoceptive acuity uh, learned in the cave and then map that onto the external world. And in that way, they'll feel a kind of energy created by the person that they're divinating and will are able, by their own account at least, to project something forward in time about what might happen with that person's energy at a later time. So they, you know, we might call it fortune telling, but they'd have a very different understanding of the relationship between past and present and future. And that's what I underwent with them is that I went and underwent a long divination with them. Tell me more. Tell me more about your divination. Well, I'll tell you about it, but I, I, I was one thing that was interesting is that I was joined. It was, it's hard to get access to the Kogi for good reason, and I managed to do it through this uh, anthropology department in Bogota. On the day that I had organised this trip into the High Sierra with the Kogis, another guy turned up, a stranger, who'd come a different route, and he was uh, from Eastern Europe. And the two of us walked in silence with one of these Kogi mamas, for about five hours up into a height of a village, which was approximately three and a half thousand meters. Just in the way that you sometimes get with other people, strangers, I just felt myself rankling, not really like taking to this guy very well. It was just the conversation was a little bit alpha-ish. It was a little bit uneasy. There was cultural differences. Anyway, so we we arrive at, at this mango tree and the, the Kogi mama, takes out a half coconut shell uh, from his uh, his bag, and fills it with a special water, and then he has these two stones, which are called tumo, 
and they're the size of wisdom teeth and they've got little holes in them. And he starts to drop these tumo into the water held by the coconut shell and bubbles are generated. And he spends a long time interpreting these bubbles and then looking up and how, seeing how the pattern of the bubbles matches the movement of the breeze in the mango trees or the way that the clouds are organized or the ants, the way that the ants are move, crawling across my foot, for example. So, and then he takes, he, he takes this into himself and then will bite on a lemon, for example, to purify himself further so that he's able to uh, then read again. All of this is powered in a way by coca leaves, which are, fed into the side of his mouth, and then he has this large gourd that's filled with lime. And he uses a stick, a needle, inside the gourd to mash the lime into a kind of calcium carbonate, which he then sticks into his mouth, into the side of the coca leaves, and activates them in this way. And this brings his reading to life. Anyway, so this other chap from Eastern Europe sits down for his divination, and instantly, it was like a sort of Indiana Jones film, instantly a cloud crosses the sun and it falls dark and a raven or a rook appears out of nowhere and lands on a, on a dead tree nearby and makes three cores. And suddenly the wind picks up and it's inhospitable. It's like, this is if this was theatre, then the villain has just arrived. That's what the world would be saying. And the face of the, the priest became duly stern and serious and he took the guy off to one side with a translator and, and issued a very sort of insistent, intense divination to this guy. And then it came to me and it was a different, it had a different flavour altogether and he told me some very accurate things about my personality that I'm prone to impetuosity and impulsivity. And he looked at me straight and said, you must think about something three times and walk around in a circle three times before you do anything. Uh, and I said, okay, well, that seems quite accurate. And then he said, oh, and another thing, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a child at some point in your life. Well, I've already got two. They're kind of late teenagers now. I thought I was done with that. All right, well, maybe he means it metaphorically. Anyway, that night I was in a hammock in the village next to this Eastern European, and I found myself asking him, what on earth the Kogi had said to him. And he started to talk. And it turned out that this man had grown up in Lithuania under communist rule. Both his parents had been sectioned under the Mental Health Act when he was 13. He had no food and no means of survival. So he started selling things from his apartment. Now, there was extraordinary uh, restrictions on what you could buy and sell, but he got good at avoiding those restrictions. Five years later, he's running a, a gang of the Lithuanian mafia and comes to London and starts organizing huge transnational smuggling rackets. For 15 years, he, he was the de facto head of a large organized crime unit with all, of, all the things that that entailed. And Not then, just household white goods. We're not kinds, talking, I mean, kinds of white goods. The main, the main, I mean, I think it involved all sorts of different produce, human, narcotic, but the main money spinner was cigarettes, importing cigarettes from across the world into Europe and selling them at, uh, you know, 
by the million and selling them. It was lots of lots of stories around this, but he got to a point where he lost his mind and he went to Peru on the recommendation of a friend in the early 2000s and drank ayahuasca and saw all the damage that he created in one night, all the people that he'd hurt, family members, strangers, all the people he'd exploited came to him and that was it. He, he had to leave behind. He went home and bought himself out of the mafia. But being an, a naturally quick-witted businessman, he set up a recycling industry. And the recycling industry was even more successful than his mafia racket, even though he was now using Mama Ayahuasca to kind of guarantee the values of the businesses. So he was looking after all of his staff. In fact, it, was, it became a requirement at the management level. If you were to be a manager in his business, you had to go to Peru and sit in an ayahuasca ceremony before he would accept you, as well as jump out of an aeroplane with a parachute. Even though he turned his life around by this ayahuasca ceremony, he still had this desperate spiritual seeking hunger, which had brought him to the Kogi. And he'd got himself into a, <laughs> he got himself into a terrible love triangle with a woman in Dubai and a woman in Dubrovnik and another woman in a, a, a gold mine in Africa. And he was he was looking to the Kogi to help him out of this <laughs> out of this love triangle. So we got to know each other that way. So the new reality of psychedelics is that over the last few decades all manner of people throughout the entire world throughout society although generally towards the upper classes are discovering these mind manifesting plants and chemicals and it's sort of changing society from the ground up but how far up does it go i mean all the way to prince harry all the way to prince harry well i, I suppose i have a different a different way of thinking about it is that psychedelics, of course, are, are, are really interesting. But what I found most interesting about them is that they really expose something about the limits of our models of understanding anything in the culture. And, for example, most obviously in the field of science, the, how restrictive the medical model, whether it's neuroscientific or clinical therapeutic, how restrictive it is in the way it understands reality in one form or another. But more broadly, I think psychedelics are a test case for what we as a culture in the West, in the affluent, educated West, do with anything that's new. In fact, maybe it doesn't need to be new. Maybe like psychedelics, it's actually just recycling things and putting a different spin on them again and again and again. And psychedelics show, give us a kind of X-ray of where we are as a culture right now and the interface of medicine and spirituality and corporatism and our inability to deal with ourselves, to put up with suffering. All of these are in play with psychedelics. And I think that's more than anything, that's what became interesting to me, rather than the science of psychedelics specifically or its efficacy in treating people or its, or its potential as a spiritual healer. Are psychedelics changing the world? Well, I think they're changing the world uh, and they're being changed by the world, but maybe not any more than a hundred other things that we might duly consider from a different, from a particular angle. It's, it's more to do with we're going to seize on something as a culture, whether it's AI or, or, or 
I mean, I think there is something specific about psychedelics that of some interest is that I think a lot of contemporary thinking is indirectly or directly shaped by the state of the climate and the environment. And the thing about that makes psychedelics particularly resonant is that they look like they're an atavistic, nostalgic return to plant wisdom, as though we can heal ourselves and heal the world by renegotiating renegotiating our relationship with plants i think that's one kind of romantic narrative that we allow ourselves to believe in around psychedelics yeah certainly in my case i feel like after yeah a number of really really powerful experiences including some very challenging ones and very badly held spaces or indeed taking cocaine or mdma that's ended up being cut with all sorts of shit. The net effect is that I actually got created some new traumas, but let a lot go in the process. And I feel like on the whole better as as a, as a result of using drugs and psychedelics, but I've definitely got some of the same shit that I've always had as well. And I was reflecting on that a lot actually this week on the on a holiday with my mum and my brother, just us alone in the mountains. Well, I think that's a very realistic portrait of your net losses and gains with psychedelics. And I, I think mine, mine, I would put, I would have a similar conclusion about my experiment with forty psychedelics in sixty nights. You know, stuff that I'll never forget. But perhaps some new skills that were learned in the face of adversity, and then a few extra traumas that I didn't have beforehand. To, to, to see me through in case I was lacking. So is that part of the book? I thought there was only 10 trips. Well, I mean, I had to, <laughs> I got on a roll, you know, and I had to- Are you, had are to, you, are you tripping right now? Is it? No, but I mean, I, I did, I, it's funnily enough, I had to write the book very quickly, like in three or four months, and I holed up in a cabin in Oregon. And I wasn't, I, I did try microdosing and writing at the same time. And it, it was really difficult to get the dosages right. So there were some portions of the book that were slightly under the control of mushrooms on one day and LSD the other. Because of COVID and the pandemic, I, and the book required quite a lot of traveling, I had to cram everything in to a relatively short space of time. And I was careful as much as I could be with, uh, I got a trip sitter for certain things and I got an integration therapist, whatever that means for some of the sessions. Uh, and I was careful about dosage. I never really let go of the side of the swimming pool every time. You know, I often kept my dosages at the subtler end. But I think cramming them together like that means that it's hard to keep, you know, there's this kind of like uh, need to pay reverence to the experience. And I was really just kind of um, crashing through them a little bit and experiences were sort of intermingling with each other and piling up a little bit. You didn't try Ritalin or Adderall or some of these study drugs that are apparently quite good, although then you might have to sleep for about two days. <laughs> no, but there's there's an artist that uh, you might have heard of him. He took 50 different drugs in 50 days and drew 50 self-portraits on each of them. And they weren't just psychedelics. Some of them were extraordinarily strong um, psychiatric drugs. And he ended up in psychiatric hospital on day 30 and still kept going as far as i understand oh my god yeah so there's a lesson there there's definitely a lesson there about excess and so you've 
knocked knocked the tripping on the head then since the yeah book. i think it's, for it's the last year publication that the trip is over the trip has been quite yeah it's been i mean i'm not averse to it and i definitely will um participate in something or another again but i've largely not gone there for about a year and it's uh, my life hasn't felt lesser because of it i have to say and uh, there's there's still plenty to think about and uh and reflect on in those in the 40 experiences i did have